Welcome, friends, to a new era of the podcast. This is The Human Voice with Bob Hutchins, and we are changing things up a little bit. We're still going to have the same amazing stories of the human journey, and I'm going to have continue to have interesting guests that come on, as I've had in the past, but we're going to expand a little bit and go beyond just religious and spiritual journeys to the human experience. So I'm really, really excited. And I have a recurring guest today, Mrs. Jennifer Black. Jenny, welcome to the... Hey, Bob. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast again. I have hinted at this in the in the recent past on other episodes of of Rumors of Grace that I'm working on a book with Jenny and you've been on the podcast talking about media trauma, talking about other things. And, you know, our friendship over the past couple of years, as we've met with our spouses and run into each other at, at coffee shops, we continue to have a shared interest in what's going on in the cyber world, what's going on in social media, what's happened over the last year or two, and as it pertains to to psychology. And why don't you just give people a little bit of your background and what you do on a regular basis for your career and where that's kind of evolved and how we kind of came to this point of, hey, let's, let's work on some ideas and ultimately put this down in a book. So I'll let you kind of talk about your, your background and your bio a little bit to set up our conversation today. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Franklin, Tennessee, and primarily worked with you know, issues of trauma and transition in therapy with individuals and couples and families. And over the past, I would say, especially the past five years, have started to see more and more trauma that didn't have a name that people couldn't say something happened to me, but more it's just life. It's just life. I'm just so overwhelmed and still suffering from really more mild symptoms of PTSD without anything to name what's actually going on. Like what is the thing that- So nothing happened to these people. Correct. Correct. And so through my own work and my own feeling the exact same way and my family's feeling the same way, we started- just realizing, oh, I think this has something to do with the pace that our digital worlds have sort of propelled us all into and that we have not adapted or we're not adapting fast enough to the pace that we're being required to, you know, match up Mm. to. And that that's having some consequences, excuse me, on our mental health. And what you, what you realized is that I know working with younger people, teens, children, et cetera, you saw a trend and maybe, and, and as you look back, I think some of the trends that I've heard you say is that these feelings of, of isolation, depression, suicidal ideation, et cetera, can be traced back to experiences that people have in the digital world that are traumatizing, right? Correct. And it's interesting to me in all the times that I have used the term media trauma, which it's been kind of fun. I probably threw out that term about five or six years ago and people would be like, oh, okay, so that's bullying. That's when someone Mm -hmm. gets bullied online. Like, yeah, that's part, that's part of it. But then now when I say the term media trauma, people are like, I have that. (laughs) They don't even know. They know it has something to do with, they have been traumatized on some level by Mm -hmm. their experience with media. But I still find it fascinating that, especially when I talk to students, they, I mean, maybe 98% of the time 
what I hear from them is it is really comparison and missing out are way more traumatic than any isolated incident that happened to them. Just that constant feeling. Mm. So as we continue to meet and unpack some of these and, and your, your husband, Adam, has been a real benefit in keeping us on track on some he of has. that. So <laughs> His superpower is focus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My superpower is curiosity, which it can get me in trouble sometimes, but it does give me the superpower to dive into this. And, and I know you are a very curious, disciplined person. So the two of us together have been spending quite a bit of time, quite a bit of hours on this. And right now we have a working title. I want to be really clear to people listening. This may not be the other title that it ends up with, but I think it's very succinct. So the title is Our Digital Soul media trauma, mental health, and our relationship with our digital environment. So that's the the overall theme, and that may or may not be the title. So you like it? I love it. I love Good. it. We worked hard for that. Yes, we did. We did. And, and thankful to you who've done a lot of the heavy lifting so far. So you've talked about the genesis of this, and, and as a marriage and family therapist dealing with all kinds of things, this seems to be coming up a lot. The word trauma, Jenny, and we've talked about this before, it's a word that's thrown around a lot. And, you know, words today have such a, a short lifespan in the world we live in because their meanings get changed pretty quickly because they're used in certain contexts over and over. And trauma is, is starting to be one of those. Like, used to be you come back from World War One, World War Two, and shell shock or PTSD from, you know, the Gulf War. And it's it used to be in that context. Well, now everyone has PTSD and everyone's throwing away, tr- throwing around trauma. And it's a shame because it's a very real psychological phenomenon that has huge effects on us as people, as a society, as cultures. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like what is trauma and what are the symptoms of trauma in the context of, of media and this idea of a digital soul? So well, how would, how would you define trauma? I know it has... It's a it sh- is a big question and it has a lot of tentacles. You pointed this out to me and so maybe we'll start here and then... I'll let you riff on this a little bit. In our book, here's an excerpt, people, from our book, the first time we've announced this. But trauma is nothing new. It's as old as humanity, but it was first documented in 1894 by Pierre Janet, depending on how you want to say that, a Swiss psychologist known for his theory of cognitive child development. I love this, 1894. He described trauma occurring when overwhelming stress leads to the development of two discrete layers of consciousness. Yeah, so when you've experienced trauma, which which tends to happen when you have not had a witness to something that's happened to you. And so there's not a lot of certainty. There's no place to work through it or process it. So if you've experienced a trauma with a group of people or you've had a witness, it often does not become a trauma for you. It becomes something really hard that you went through but it doesn't become something that changes your brain and changes the way that you look at your reality today. Mm. So trauma is when an incident happens and now you're filtering your future incidents through that situation. So you're not in reality directly. 
you have the trauma that is this filter between you and reality, which then, as we both know, will create more traumatic situations in your, like you start seeing trauma everywhere. You start inviting trauma into your story and into your life. So the idea is that when you are are suffering from trauma, you are not in your present moment. You that is being impacted by your experiences in the past and your fear of some other new experience or an experience being repeated in the future. Can you give me an example of that in your practice? I mean, well, I will. T- I can tell you on my own. We had a drive-by shooting at, in our neighborhood many years mm. ago, and it was it's a very safe and happy neighborhood. So there was no sense of having like braced ourselves or prepared for that kind of thing. My kids were young. Every, all the kids were playing outside. Thankfully, no one was hurt. But the sound of those gunshots, I I remember being anywhere in my office, driving in my car. And if I would hear, you know, somebody hit uh, something on the road and it make that loud sound or construction working make that, I mean, my whole body would go, that's, that, it reacted as if it was a gunshot. And then I remember sitting in my office and seeing the windows behind my clients and thinking, what's to keep someone from shooting in through that window? Like that, like now my world wasn't just my world. It was this world that was anticipating that kind of situation again, because my my sweet little brain, all of our brains, is is that I want to do whatever I can do to make sure that you never feel that unsafe again. And so, if I protect myself, if I if I imagine that it's going to happen, then that makes me feel safe on some level. And yet, it makes me unsafe. Right? It it takes away truly. It takes away my mental health, my mm. ability to care for myself, because it puts us in that hyper vigilant mode that is looking out for danger instead of being in the world as we are. Mm, mm. Yeah, and and I think we most people know the stereotypical example of, say, somebody who's been in a war and then they come home and they can't function. You know, we've seen this in movies and other things. And, you know, they go out to dinner with their wives or husbands and they hear a backfire of a car and they hit the ground thinking that, you know, someone's shooting at them. That's a great example. And it's just, it's just, again, it's a stereotypical example, but it's valid of people living in a alternate re- two realities at the same time that normally uh, a healthy response is, Oh, I might be startled, but you first thing is, Oh, there's a car that backfired or that was loud or someone needs to get the car fixed. Not, someone's shooting at me, I'm going to hit the ground and, you know, freak out or jump in the foxhole or someone who's been raped and specifically women who, who have a traumatic experience who then relive these horrible things, can't have normal relationships, maybe with, with other significant others, whatever it may be. But what you're saying is, is it goes even deeper to the everyday lives of, of ourselves where we experience things and they might be small from other people's perspective, but they do affect us when they're compounded over and over and over again. Yeah. It's almost like that, that whole idea of the car backfiring instead of falling to the ground. So say that was at a volume 20, 
that the kind of PTSD that most of us are suffering now is like at a volume four or five. It's this just kind of like inner panic that happens that that people might not even know about if they're you know out to dinner with us. But the emotionally and mentally, these same kind of hypervigilant behaviors and, and emotional reactions mm. are taking place. Mm. You know, when in our book, we outline some of these things specifically on what are some of the evidence and results uh, of you might see in your own life or you might see in others. And we've kind of outlined them. So let's just go through them. One of them is the first thing, they all spell media, so they're easy to remember, but misuse Talk about that a little bit. So the first definition of media trauma is when the misuse of personal media results in neglect of yourself or others. So this is just really fascinating to me how, I mean, most, I would say this is the category most people can relate to with media trauma because it's not that they have this overwhelming issue. It's more like, oh my gosh, I feel like it's taking over my life. I feel like I just, it's required for everything. I've got a hundred things pulling me in a lot of directions. And so you're kind of playing that whack-a-mole, putting out fires all the time, but so busy managing whatever that means, your text threads, your emails, your social media feed, the dings and all of those aspects of the design that your your care for yourself, and we've talked about just your literal like getting to eat, getting to sleep, getting good rest is a huge issue with media trauma and getting to move, that your your own body and being is being neglected because these demands are so mm. great. And then, of course, if you have children or dependents, that their needs aren't getting met because all of us need a caregiver. Like we're our first caregiver and then most of us, uh, many of us also have other people that we're responsible for giving care yeah. to. You know, one of the things that that you and I talk a lot about, and I know it's psychology geeky stuff, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs, his very first thing that every human being needs is the need for food, shelter, just basic taking care of yourself. Like you can't progress and grow as a human being if you don't have food and shelter. And rest. And rest. Just the the basic physical needs that we all need. A child who never has that, we've heard stories of the wolf boy who's raised by wolves. And obviously, if if that happens, which I guess it can happen, who raises himself in the wild or herself, does not function as a normal, healthy human being in society. It's impossible. And so... It's interesting that that you said and that we've researched that how the use of media can affect the very base needs of neglecting ourselves. And I know I've done this and I'm guilty of it, of, you know, scrolling for hours or not making wise use of my time or maybe not even, maybe even missing a meal or not taking, you know, proper hygiene, you know, since some extremes people can go to this because they're playing a video game or they're scrolling the internet for 12 hours at a time. Do you, do you see that or uh, in your work? Well, and I would even say, well, we'll get into this in another description. So it's, it's more, I would say the misuse is having a lack of any boundaries mm. where the the human is not taken into consideration. The technology is is in the driver's seat of your life. Mm. And so the technology is getting cared for. Your email, you're getting updated. You know, you're, you're 
maybe even doing something really productive. It doesn't necessarily have to be a waste of time, but it's it's out of proportion. It's caring for caring for that in those spaces and making sure you responded to everybody's texts. And I just heard such a great story yesterday from a teenager who I'm trying to think how she said it. Oh, she came to therapy and said, oh, I, I know what's wrong with me. And her therapist was like, oh, what is it? And she goes, it's this phone. It's those dings. They don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> And yet she sleeps with it under her pillow mm. because she can't, but mm. she can't miss one thing. So it's that need to care for this thing, right? As if it's a pet or something like that, that causes a neglect of self. I recently heard an interview with Elon Musk and he was, someone asked him, you know, how long uh, is it going to be before the computer chips are embedded in our brains and we have that cyber relationship that we can communicate, get information, et cetera, enhance ourselves. And he thought for a minute and he's, I don't remember exact word. He says, you know, within three, four five years, it was a shorter amount of time. But then he made a caveat. He said, however, we have these things right now. We all have them. They're called our personal phones, our cell phones, our iPhones, whatever they may be. He says, we have already a very intimate relationship. He says, they may not be implanted in our bodies, Mm -hmm. but we have a very intimate relationship with these things that we can't let go of or, or get out. And I think that's what you're saying is there is a misuse And by no means are we saying it's all bad, but there is a misuse that takes place that can be traumatizing, that causes you, as the definition says, to live in two realities at the same time that we can't separate, right? Correct. Okay. What's the second one? The second one is expectations. So this one was just added after 2020, which was that media trauma is emotional, physical, or mental wellness that is compromised as a result of screen requirements and expectations from school, work, or social circles. Mm-hmm. So this is something I hear from a lot of people that they're, they're, they didn't choose. They're not the person who's scrolling for hours a day. They really don't want to be that connected to it, but their work or school or group of friends requires that, like the loss of an, in, excuse me, an income, an education, or any connection with their friends would be lost. And so they feel like they have to stay in the cycle that is harmful to them in order to participate in society. Mm, that's interesting. And in order to participate in society, and I think that is such a, that's a big topic we don't have time to unpack, but I know that any any young person coming up, not to speak of adults, it happens in adults all the time too, but there's a there's an unspoken expectation that if you don't have a cell phone at a very young age, you can't function in your social circles. That's a given. And what I'm saying is that's the expectation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's true at all. However, there is a reality of most kids in middle class and even not even middle middle class environments and up it's all it's all ages now and all and all socioeconomic that if you're going to communicate message know what's going on be in the in crowd even your own tribe 
if you're you are out of the loop if you don't have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And do you see that too in some of your your therapy and things that you've encountered? Yeah, and it's really crossed over from schools too. Like so many parents have been like, I didn't want my kids to have it, but that's the only way they're getting homework assignments now. And it's it's also it's kind of an interesting thing because there's not a lot of relationship that's happening. Mm-hmm. It's much more about a feel a felt sense of belonging. Like I have the thing everybody else has, mm-hmm. or I know the game everybody else is talking about, or I know how that app works. It's it. I mean, we go into this a lot in the book, but it really is more about emotional safety. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm if I'm scanning the environment, I know how this works. Then I can protect myself enough to feel like I can belong or feel safe with this group mm-hmm. of people. And again, it goes and that fits into the definition of what we said could be trauma, meaning the inability to distinguish between two alternate realities and and in the digital world and the real world. When you're not able to separate that, meaning I can't function in the real world unless I am involved in this alternate world, then that could be traumatizing in and both sides, like getting involved in it and be traumatized or the perception that you're on the outside. Right, too. right. That's interesting. Yeah. And the next one is development. Talk to me about that oh, one. This might be my favorite one. Media trauma is an interruption to human development because of a misuse of personal media. So again, there are, you know, we, we kind of say this disclaimer every time we have this conversation. Media trauma is about the misuse. It's about the harms. It's not about, this isn't really a study of all the great things that can happen and do happen. This is kind of acknowledging the vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and the the harms that could happen. So in, in the phase, as a human develops, we have all of these different phases of development that we must go through. We kind of must graduate from them. And in the book, we use Eric Erickson's phases of development And basically we study that from the time you're born until the time you die, you have these questions that you're, you're asking of yourself and the world. And, and during these certain ages, this, the healthy developing human has inherent ways that they engage with the world. Like when you see a little baby put everything in their mouth, that's part of their navigating the world and developing these new skills for their next phase of development. And so what we really unpack in the book is basically that media, if in at any, like for instance, from birth to 18 months old, what a baby, the process a baby's going through is can I trust the world? Mm. So when we, if we do introduce technology to a child before that age, which is not recommended to buy on any list <laughs> that's been ever written or studied by every association, that exists today. But the question is, can I trust the world? And Mm. so however media does get inter and engages with that Mm -hmm. child at that phase, that's the question we want to be using our technology to help answer and move forward and evolve Mm. as opposed to interrupting it. Mm. So when I, as a baby that's crying, has cries to get its needs met from its caregiver, if the response from that caregiver is an iPad that that makes that chi- distracts and overstimulates that child from the things that they're feeling, which all of us know happens, right? When I am on an engaging screen, I lose connection with my physical body. I often don't know that I'm hungry. I don't know that I'm tired because it's it's taking over kind of a different part of my brain. 
then that baby doesn't ever learn to trust the world to get its needs met. And that's, we can take that from every, Mm. then can I control my own behavior? Can I become independent of my parents and explore my limits? Like those questions have to be answered in reality Mm. in order for us to move on to the next phase of development. And I deeply believe that there are ways that technology could be designed and ethically curated to facilitate those Mm. phases of development. I do not believe that we have had the care and attention to our media as we know it today, I think we're seeing a lot more interruptions to those questions than we are facilitating its growth. Mm. What happens, and I know we've talked about this quite a bit, what happens to that child, to that human being who their development is interrupted? And and what you're saying, what I hear you saying, and what you and I both have researched and studied and and read the, the work on this is that if a human being doesn't develop in that cognitive growth over time, that they are really stunted in that area. Meaning, if you look at the brain from the brain stem and it grows all the way up to the, the frontal cortex, that's how the, the the brain grows inside of you know an embryo. That's how the human is developed. It starts and then it just grows up like a like a growing organism, and it really doesn't stop until the early twenties, right? So if those basic needs as that brain is developing is not met and those neurotransmitters and all those things aren't connected and organized in the right way, then that person could potentially go through life with an underdeveloped aspect of that brain. Am I saying that correctly? And so what would that look like? So in that birth to, to 18 months, 18 months, can I trust the world? Yeah. Right? So can I trust the world means, so a baby is as dependent as a human can get and all they can do is cry. They are right. not, they don't even really, they're not even attempting to communicate a specific need. They just know they, they have a felt need and they cry to get that need met. And in healthy development, someone hears that cry and meets that need. Mm. And so that child learns the world is a safe place. A human being will protect me if I am have some need. I get my need met, mm-hmm. yeah. And if a iPad is put in front of that baby to meet that need, they learn the world is not necessarily a safe place unless I have this device that soothes me. Is that what you're saying? Well, or? that more, more in this phase of development, it's really that I didn't get my, my cries didn't get my needs met. Mm. So the world is not available to meet my needs. Mm. So um, stopping a child from crying is not the same mm. as making sure a hungry child is fed. Mm. And that we've never seen that before. That That's something that the the design of a lot of these apps are so overstimulating that it's it triggers the same part of the brain that being on drugs does. And so when a baby is getting that level of stimulation in, they're they're checked out. Like I always tell parents if you wonder if the media that your kids are engaging with is ethical or not, look at their face. Mm. And if their face looks like they're on drugs, it's not ethical media. Mm. Right? If their eyes are glazed over, if their mouth is hanging open, 
then you have they have activated the pleasure sense in the brain, which is overriding anything that they actually those felt needs of mm. hunger or loneliness or you know all those things we need. Mm. We we outline all ages, and it's it's easy to look at children and make these assessments, but we outline it all the way to 60 plus, right? So let me just go through these. I'll, I'll breeze through them and we will maybe hit on a couple of them because I know we, we have two more things in our, our spelling out of media. So we're in the development. We talked about birth to 18. 18 to three-year-olds, the question psychologically that we are trying to answer is, can I control my own behavior? Four to five-year-olds, can I become independent of my parents and explore my limits? Six to 11-year-olds, can I master the skills necessary to survive and adapt? 12 to 18-year-olds, who am I? What are my beliefs, feelings, and attitudes? 19 to 39-year-olds, can I love? 40 to 59-year-olds, can I make my life count? And then 60-plus-year-olds, is it okay to have been me? Okay, we could have a show on each one of <laughs> right. these, and my mind's spinning. But let's talk about four- to five-year-olds. Go back. Can I become independent of my parents and explore my limits? But but actually, let's go back to 18-month to three-year-olds, because this one, I think, is very relevant to today. 18 months to three-year-olds. Can I control my own behavior? That's a big one. Right. It's a big one. And this is the self-soothing time when we learn the ability to self-soothe. And this is one of one of my biggest concerns about the ways that we engage our phones in particular or iPads for this age group is that if we are using an external source to self-regulate or no, that's not self-regulation, right? Mm -hmm. Or being regulated by this thing. And I feel like that's, and I, I mean, this is 18 months to three years old. And yet I think that this, that is a shared experience for everyone I know who has their, their issues, you know, their connection and relationship to media is, oh, I'm not, I'm not okay until I check, find my iPhone and make sure my kid got there safely. Mm. Right? Like I can't regulate, I can't work. That's something we don't do anymore as parents is work through, okay, I'm going to be okay without knowing that my child is safe. Mm. Like we don't do that. Mm. We check on it and we make sure, and then we are okay. Mm. Well, that creates this dependency for, and then it's like, oh, did they respond to my text yet? I mean, it's this huge range of things that aren't important at all that when we feel emotionally unregulated, we go to it to find some source of information and that then makes us feel mm. regulated. And we talk about this in the book that's called Reassurance Seeking. And it's a very, very harmful to mental health to constantly be seeking reassurance. Yeah. And, and also the whole concept of can I control my own behavior? You know, I'm going to open up a can of worms here, that, but I don't think it's a can of worms because it's been documented, it's been studied, and more and more, there is a correlation. It's not the sole causation, but there is a correlation of ADD, ADHD, and technology use. I mean, it's a common fact that 
it, the diagnosis of those cases has skyrocketed alongside of the introductions of smartphones and iPads technology into our society. It's a direct correlation. You, you know, you look before and after. So, can you talk about that a little bit from from a therapist standpoint? What you see, and again, we're not saying that causation and correlation are the same thing, but. There have been studies, and there is proof. There is even uh, neurobiological studies that are going on with the brain. But just practically in your work, what do you see? Yeah, well, I'm thinking what the rise we saw in TikTok in 2020. And TikTok is unique in its incredibly brief videos. And the feed is very, it learns you very fast. And so it can continue feeding you for infinite hours the exact thing that you want to see. And my daughter, who wasn't into TikTok before quarantine, got very, I mean, I would say it's her her primary source to the outside world this past year. And she said for herself, she's like, this is changing my brain. I'm, I, I cannot think the same thoughts and sentences that I used to. And she said a lot of the people that she's seeing on, like, a lot of the TikTokers, the people who are sharing content, are saying the same thing. So that's that's kind of a. I doubt that there's any research about that mm. yet because it's it's just happened. But it's almost taken everything that's happened over the past ten years and condensed it into this like super super intense. Like people are actually seeing and experiencing it change their brains after just like a month or two mm. of having been on it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and having that self-control, again, we're, I'm going to keep going back because we're, this book is about media trauma, is it that fits into the definition uh, of Genet or Janet of saying it's the simultaneously a struggle of existence that stress creates to that causes you to live in two realities at the same time. And again, you see this. It's easy to see. I can see it in my own life, but it's easy to see in, in younger teens, children, preteens, this inability to self-control, to pay attention, to focus. And again, that correlation there of I've got, you know, moving from one thing to the next. I'm getting massive amounts of information. I don't want to fear missing out. That's that's one reality, right? Well, yeah, I'm thinking about how fast my brain has to, ad- the, the pace my brain has to adapt to in, in digital spaces, right? And I can do it and you can do it and we can get there and we're like, yes, I'm here. I've, I've kind of sped up my consciousness to keep mm-hmm. up with all of this coming in, in right. contrast to- yeah. Yeah. I want to talk before we move on from the development piece of this is 40 to 59 year olds, which that's where we are. We're hanging out there, Bob. We're hanging out there. Can I make my life count? What what is what is media's role in that? I have some ideas. I'd love to hear yours, then I'll give you mine. I I mean, personally, I probably similar to you, my professional life and my personal development just came like evolved at the same time that the internet was evolving, mm-hmm. you know, with blogs and the, you know, what do some people call it? The, the pure internet and, and just kind of the pure social media in the beginning when it really was, I'm connecting to friends and networking and getting to see how, how I could make my life count in a completely, you know, new ways that were not ever fathomed by me. 
once media entered our story. And now there's there's just so much more expectations or the way that has to look or the ways that I'm supposed to engage in that in order to really make my life count. Like I'm not on social media. And the most common thing people say is like, well, then how will anyone ever know about you? Mm. Like they're like you really the message I've gotten is you cannot make your life count if you're not on social media mm. and on a professional realm. And that so that's the perfect example for me is can I make my life count without social media? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also in it, I think for me and my career and my life, and I know my peers, and even spending time with you working on this book is there is there's expectations that you can easily fall into because you have access to so much. This again, getting back to our our definition, this alternative reality that we have access to, that if we spend too much time there, it can do a number on us because you're it's easy to fall into a comparative mode that's at your fingertips. So it used to be back when you and I were growing up and prior to that, is that if you wanted to know who was successful or people you respected, or you might see them on TV, but you had to read about them and you had to go to the library and you had to read books and you had to spend time processing, right? What this person did, who they were. I mean, that that's kind of the whole purpose of going to school and spending a year at a time and one grade at a time that you know, you study social studies, you study math because you you pro, you you learn, and your body processes and your brain processes these things, and you explore what it took for Abraham Lincoln to to be born, you know, a poor pump country guy in a cabin to self educating himself to becoming a a lawyer to then becoming a president and being the catalyst to to end slavery. You know, that's a that's a big topic. But today we live in a world and. At our age now, when we in our careers, we can easily, quickly, at the speed of light, say, "Oh, what's my peer done at my age? Oh, this guy is—he's obviously successful. Look at what he's doing, or look how much he's amassed, or look at these five books he's written." And yet, we're not seeing the complete picture. It's an alternate reality. What does that do for us? You know, that those are the things that I think we need to be careful to ask ourselves and not fall into that to say, because the question that we're asking at this age is, is my life count? If I were to die today, did I live for yeah. anything? And that's huge. Yeah. Well, and on a more specific level, like writing this book is that for me, like I have to write this book. And for me, the way that I'm wired and that I'm made if I am on social media, I cannot, it takes so much of my energy, so much of my resources. I am so easily influenced by what I think people want or are approving of that I don't have any access to that deeper place of work that Cal Newport talks about. So for me to be in those spaces does not allow me my own creativity, my own mind my own perspectives and opinions to be able to do the work that I believe makes my life count for me. That's kind of honoring my own, you know, desires and dreams. Mm, that's good. That's good. Let's move on to the next big topic of what, what are effects and or signs and that's incident 
of trauma. So the fourth definition of media trauma is experiencing or witnessing a traumatic incident through personal media use. So this is the one I talked about at the beginning that most people assume media trauma is, which is, oh, that was a, a violent thing that happened or someone was bullied or had some sort of they, like I said earlier, they could say to someone, this thing has happened to me and I can't stop thinking about it. A fascinating thing about this is that the traumatic incident does not have to happen to you directly. It could be that you just watched the traumatic incident. And I think a lot of us have experienced that through 2020. Mm. In, uh, one of the, the classic studies that we referred to a lot is what has happened what happened with the Boston Marathon bombing and a study that was done people who were actually there versus people who witnessed it on media cell phones etc and talk a little bit about what you and how you understand that study and why that was so revealing well it just kept seeming so strange to me that people could witness these events and be so traumatized by them and it would seem, all of us would say, like, oh gosh, it, it must have been worse for the people who were there. And yet what, we've found, what we find with trauma is that you're, when, when you're in overwhelmingly stressful situations or violent situations, your body is physically in that experience. So you're mm -hmm. having all these chemicals that are, you know, adrenaline and cortisol that are being triggered by your body. And you have to somehow do something with it. So biologically, these chemicals were made in an emergency to help our bodies to fight, right? To, to mm -hmm. fight or flight. And when we are in those situations, we usually get to do something. We have some physical release or and relief of those chemicals. In addition, we have all this context. So the example that I give is that we had a car accident in front of our, it was actually a hit and run in front of our house a few months ago. And, you know, you heard the loud crash, all the neighbors ran out and it was, everybody was really in shock because it was during rush hour at this three-way stop. And some, I mean, like crazed driver like went through, went around three cars, through the stop sign, hit somebody, and then just took off. Mm. So it was a very bizarre accident. And if I had just taken a picture of the situation itself, the crashed accident, the scared family, and I had written, crazed driver runs through intersection in a tiny neighborhood, it would be like, oh my gosh, here's another story of how terrible the world is, why we should not leave our houses. and But the reality was, if you had been there, you would see that every neighbor and every single person in their car was out caring for each other, checking on each other, calling 911, getting the family food and drinks. And it was this like community experience that you saw the context of this. If, if you wanted a glimpse of the world, there was one person that obviously was having a very bad day. <laughs> we don't know what was going on with that individual. But you would see that that was, you know, 5% of the story was that awful thing. Mm. But our experiences with media are only giving us that mm. snapshot. We're not getting to have our full body cellular experience of the context, which at the end of that, even in the trauma of it and the crisis and the unexpected was a sense that the world is a good place. 
that if something bad happens to me, I'm going to be taken care of. And that's mm. what was communicated to everybody there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think of the micro traumas that take place in my own life, meaning it's really easy for us to kind of stand back and say, I don't want my 13-year-old son or daughter watching an ISIS beheading video. We know that that's probably not healthy as parents, as human beings. But I think what we're finding and what you're saying from these studies is that even the instances that we now perceive as normal, mass shootings, bombings. Police brutality. Police brutality. Yes, all of us have watched and seen the George Floyd video, if not once, multiple times. And when I say micro traumas, I don't even know if that's a real thing. For me, the, it helps me to understand that's disturbing. And But we can, I can so easily swipe by and go, oh. That's horrible and feel bad for about 15 seconds and then on to the next thing. And it might be 10 good things that I read, but then that same day I'm faced with another thing that like, oh, this person that, that was a loose acquaintance of me died by some horrible thing or on and on it goes. And, and what we're saying and what the studies are find is that in a normal setting, your body can work those things out. You can cry. You can go help that person at the bombing. You can talk about it and process it with another person for an hour. You might, These are all ways... You might even see the fear on someone else's face. And react. And know, oh, yes, we're sharing in this. Right. And that's that's those are healthy, normal human ways to work out stress, trauma. But when it when it's focused, laser targeted, and all concentrated on a small screen, your brain still doesn't know the difference, right? It's still going, there's a physiological reaction that must take place, but we've figured out a way to keep that from happening. Meaning, I see it, scroll. I see it, scroll. I see it, scroll. Well, and there's also a very, again, biologically, we have to start moderating our empathy. So there is this sense of, I can't really let that, I can't really let myself feel what I would feel about that because, mm. well, maybe because I'm scrolling in the Starbucks line and I've got to hurry up and get to whatever. I'm not actually experiencing that hard, horrible thing. And I don't, I don't have the grid for it. Right. Mm. And so I think that's, that's also the decrease in em- empathy that we're seeing across the board is a survival skill. Like mm. we, we cannot handle if we let ourselves truly be empathetic for the level mm. of trauma that we're seeing across the world, we would not be functional. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I, and I, the mind body connection for me is, a relatively new discovery for me in the past five, seven years, meaning I have to get up it several times throughout the day and move. And that might be walk around the building wherever I am at, go for a long walk, go, go in the woods and take a trail hike for 30 minutes. And that's not always normal for people, mm-hmm. meaning in our modern day society, it's like, Bob, you okay? Why are you getting out and walking twice a day? Or why are you, you know, taking time out in the morning before you start your day to go on a hike? And what I realized is like if it it releases something in me and it helps me to take all of those things that my 
brain is saying, you need to bodily process these out mm-hmm. and, and get them out. I don't know if you encounter the same thing, but I think that's what I found for me. It's imperative. And when I don't do it, I can get depressed. I can have anxiety. I can get stressed all because I'm not allowing my body to work out what my brain is sending the signal for, right? It's, it's absolutely essential. And it's, again, something that we've just lost touch with as, as society has evolved. I think about like how the exercise, like the word exercise wasn't even, <laughs> didn't even right. mean what it no, was. There, there was, was no such thing. No exercise industry. And it took us, I think I've looked this up before. It took 50 years after the industrial revolution for us to realize we had to move because we'd always Mm. moving was just a part of, you weren't going to eat or live or get anywhere if you didn't move. So that's 50 years of people who suffered some consequence of not moving before we were like, oh, we now need to consciously put something back into our daily lives that used to just be there, Mm. which I think we're in another version of that Mm. now. But the other thing, um, you were talking about exercise. Yes, that movement is huge for me. I if if I cannot be exercising, I have to be on antidepressants. There's not mm. um, those are the same thing yeah. for me. And exercise has very little side effects. But the other thing that I say all the time is hobbies save lives. Like having any kind of hobby that gets you out of that dual That's good. Those separate things. And then the third thing that we haven't even talked about in the book yet is, you know, I mean, we haven't written it. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't written it is that you and I, it's been really good that we've been having these conversations as we have both had different levels of traumatic content that we mm. have been exposed to sure. and getting to say, Hey, can we talk about this? Or this is really bothering me. Like so much of our experiences of crisis through our phones, we just we're not really talking about what that mm. did to us, how I felt, what I'm supposed to do about it, what I'm not, because it's like, oh yeah, we just all know that happened. But I had a friend who told me that her dad was a prisoner of war from World War II. And he came home and did not have any PTSD. Mm. And he had has just been, he was still alive at the time that we had this conversation, but he has just been so struck by all these people suffering from PTSD and trauma. And like, if there's any character, you know, that should have suffered Mm -hmm. it, it would Mm -hmm. be him. And in his like observations, he said, one, obviously he may have just some different mental um, strengths than the average person. And that's probably Mm -hmm. very likely. But he said, after paying a lot of attention, he think it's he thinks it's everything to do with the community that took care of him when he got home. Wow. And so that has made me realize that it may not be that we have more trauma than we've ever had, even though we have to say we are exposed to right. more trauma than we've ever had the ability to be exposed to before, but that it's the community care that we were mm. missing. Mm. So, so so important. So important. The, the last one is addiction. We could, again, we could go all over the place on that, but, but at a very simple sense, you referred earlier to the child who was talking, who, who said, 
it activates the same chemicals in the part of the brain that an addict has, meaning they're getting that hit of, of dopamine or, or whatever it produces. And you can see it on their faces many times because children aren't that socially aware yet and say... Well, you can see it on adults' yeah, faces too. <laughs> yeah, but it's easier on kids, right? Right. To some degree, maybe not. But, but, but the addiction to devices and... I want to be really clear, and you probably get tired of me saying this, Jenny, is it's really easy for someone to listen to, especially a younger generation, and be, oh gosh, a bunch of Gen Xers or boomers telling me how bad technology is. And that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying there's some very real things that are going on psychologically and sociology, sociological that are bigger than just technology bad, turn it off. We're saying there is an integration at a cellular and physiological level that is about to be, in my opinion, integrated into our bodies as well, that can be very, very helpful for us as humans. But along with it comes some very dark stuff that we need to be aware of and identify. And addictions to this technology is probably the biggest one, right? Yeah, it really is. And, and part of that being that so many of the devices and the programs and platforms are actually designed to be addictive. That's how their business plan is based on you not getting off of it. So that isn't, that's not on anybody. Like it, you don't have to have an addictive brain to, to be wired, to be addicted to the, to addictive mm. technology. But the definition is media trauma is, of addiction is media trauma is when you're suffering from an addiction to your phone, your media, or other screens. And that addiction means that it's impairing your relationships, your ability to work or your ability to play. Mm. So I have found that for, from, in my experience working with individuals, they usually will own on like I am addicted. I have a problem. I know that I have a problem. This isn't about my work. This isn't about that that game is so fun. You know, it's not about the other an, a traumatic incident that happened that I'm going back to. They can say purely this is my alcohol. This is my drugs. This is like I can't put it down. I don't want to think about anybody else and I don't even know um, what to do if I'm not on it. So that's what we're talking about. When we're talking about addiction. And it really deserves its care and it deserves some really special care because we have this entire society that's built around using it. So we're thinking more of like a food addiction mm -hmm. or a money addiction. That's that's what people are suffering with is how do I get out of this? And we really do want, want them to know that there is hope and there is a way to engage in this in a way that doesn't trigger the addiction. But, oh, there's one more thing I wanted to say about that. It is truly a, like I, oh, I know what I was going to say, like clients that deal with this addiction, oftentimes their own, like their only goal is that I want to have one hour a day mm. that I'm not on a screen. Mm. And that's how they start their healing. Mm. That's really good. I know you referred to the young, we started this with the young girl who um, sleeps with her phone under the pillow because she can't function knowing that there's some activity or dings going off that she can't immediately respond to. And while that might be in her brain, her processing of, oh, I'm responding and engaging with another human being, really what is going on is her brain is addicted to that hit of, if I don't 
every time I respond or see that, especially when it's something positive, it gives me something that I'm that I, I gotta have. And if I don't have it, my brain is like, I'm gonna go through withdrawals in a very real way. Is that accurate? It is. And it's also really about safety. Mm. I think that there's just so much of a vulnerable population. We're all pretty vulnerable that, that, and we talk about this in the book, that if we have our phones, we feel safe. And so if we're interacting and engaging with our phone, we're getting that, those hits of reassurance that I'm still here and I still matter. And we, we dive into this quite a bit in the book, but really what we're talking about is what happens when technology becomes your primary attachment figure. And our, our entire abilities to relate to ourselves and the world are dependent on our attachment to our primary caregiver and to our partners. And so when we are partnered with technology that is not designed in our best interest, that isn't looking out for to make sure that I got food and that I'm safe, we absolutely will, as a culture, be suffering from not feeling safe high levels of anxiety, depression, like that, because it can't care for us. Mm, That's really good. I want to wrap this up and spend a couple of our last minutes talking about this this paragraph, because I think it it's one of the things that hinges our whole writing and our research so far on. So let me read it and then then let's talk about it. While we do While we do all have endless things we can do, see, learn, get done through our phones, it is essential that we acknowledge that much of our checking and clicking is because the demands of reality require something from us and scrolling does not. The things we need to do, the things we want to do involve preparing, planning, thinking, assessing, list making, errands, and action steps. Our phones have become easy buttons for us to have a surface experience of having done something without accomplishing anything at all. And, you know, as we wrote that, as you brought that to me, and as we kind of refined that, I can't stop thinking about it because what we're saying is that this environment that that we're living in, this alternative environment, again, going back to the original definition, traumatizes us, stresses us. By training us to say, I can have actions and trick my brain, hack my brain into thinking that I'm actually achieving things and doing things, but I'm really not, right? Is that kind of what, yes. what we're saying yes. there? And, yes. it, and it never have, never have, I think, in, in our society... Have we been able to really do that so effectively? It's like, yeah, you can always waste time and be bored. But for instance, if I'm at a, and I, and again, I'm looking in the mirror and this is why I write this and study this. I'm trying to figure out my crazy brain is if I'm at a coffee shop and I order a coffee, I usually have five minutes to wait while I'm in line and they're making that coffee or however long it takes. My natural reaction is to pull my phone out and scroll or respond to an email or respond to something because I think my brain has tricked itself to say, I can be productive during this five minute period Mm -hmm. and get something done. Mm -hmm. Rather, what my brain really needs 
for healthy growth and development and neuroplasticity because our brains can change is that's a really good time, Bob, for you to practice being present for five minutes and just being with yourself, maybe talking to the person next to you and connecting with the human being. But I've short-circuited that and said, um, uncomfortable, nothing to do, stand here, pull out my phone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that most of it requires so little of us. Mm. Like checking my email does not require anything of me. Actually thinking about what email I need to respond to and formatting that requires something of me. So in my own habits, that's what I was aware of. Like, oh, I might be on here all the time, but I'm just doing the thing that makes me think I'm getting something done and I'm not actually doing it because that, you feel it. I mean, that gear that has to kick in to actually go look in the fridge and see what you need to get from the grocery store actually requires something of me. So I first noticed this with my kids because this is before we had really any boundaries around technology or phones. They were both in high school and they were stu- they would come home from school and spent over five hours a night on homework. And both of my kids who are very good students were getting C's and D's in school. And I'm just sitting there looking at them like, but you're, they couldn't eat dinner with us. They were staying up until midnight doing homework. It was like, this is crazy. Like, how did school get this hard? And that's when I was reading Cal Newport's deep work. And in that, he says that when your phone is present, that it takes you five times as longer to do yes. everything. Yes. And so we started, and this was like an experiment. It wasn't a punishment. We started like where my kids had to go somewhere else. We lived in an apartment at the time. So they had to go mm. take their laptops somewhere else in the building. And I only let them study for two hours. Like the maximum they could do any homework was two hours a night, but they had to do it completely free of their phone. And it was like, we got our life back. Mm. I mean, their grades went up. They started enjoying their, their work more, like actually enjoying the thing that they were studying because they weren't pulling back out of it to check that text or mm. whatever. And I think Cal Newport talks about this in Deep Work, that you get stuck in that higher, that shallow level of functioning in your brain. But what really breaks my heart for students especially, but for all of us, is that what that does is it starts teaching us that our effort does not make a difference. Mm. And when we are getting into those deeper levels and actually doing something in our real life, like mm. organizing your closet or something you know, tangible, you, you reconnect that my work makes a difference. When I give myself to something, right. something happens. And I think there's so much burnout and futility that comes when I've worked 10 hours on this paper and I mm-hmm. haven't gotten anything done. Yeah. And so we're losing that connection to cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And that is very concerning to me. Yeah, I want yeah. people to feel like their work matters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, it, and, and it, it's really, this has permeated in this issue of the digital soul and, when, and, and the reason that, that we're going and calling this the, our digital soul is that truly is integrated. It is an intimate part and it is an alternate reality that we live in. And the, the outcome for me, and I think I can speak with you for you, but for me specifically, is I want us to do better as people. I want our technology to be better. I have a phone and I have an iPad, as do you. And so we rely on these tools and we want 
them to do better. We want companies to do better, but we can't do better until we have a sense of self-awareness and understand what's really going on. I think that's the main thing is I want to understand what's going on in the human brain and in the society. And this is so much less of a cultural thing and it's really a human thing that we're seeing. And so I think the purpose of the book, and I'll speak for myself, is I just want people to be aware. I want those lights to go on. And I want them to realize that we are so interdependent on one another through the use of these things that we'll get on we'll get into that in maybe another episode but just we we can do better we can do better as as individuals as cultures as societies as as commerce as companies who control these things but we've got to understand it yeah and i would just add to that my concern is that we are in a mental health crisis and we probably will be the rest of my mm-hmm. lifetime and to understand that the contributors to our mental health wellness and that this is this is a huge factor to to think that you could work on your anxiety and depression and not care about not care for and address the ways that your digital world is impacting you is is going to leave you without a lot of progress yeah that's great well, Jenny, again, always enlightening. Thank you for your time. I'm excited as we continue to work on this, and I hope people will will find it helpful. Thank you. All so right. fun to be back. Yes, yes. So please like or review. As always, mediatrauma.com, Jenny, if people wanted to connect with you and some of the things that you're doing. You got it. Awesome. Okay, until next time, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.